want to thank the Wright kids for showing us that that is a race. Part two, and that's what we're talking about today. Today we wrap up our series that we started a few weeks ago on uh, faith that moves, moves us into action. And today we look back for just a bit and then we look at our passage today. You know that in the past month or two, we've been looking every week at an Old Testament example of someone, man, woman, who had faith that moved them to action. And today, we look back briefly, but we look at the most important person who is our inspiration. And today, we're at Hebrews chapter 12. So would you, uh, if you have a copy of your scriptures, follow me as I read the first three verses that form the conclusion to the hall of faith and faithfulness, obedience that moved them to action. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, the Word of God says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's the word of God. Summarizing Hebrews chapter 11 and his message for us today. May it be so. Today, I want you to see in these three verses, there's actually three parts of running the race that we need to remember. I know it's been a tough week. <laughs> it's, there's no coincidence when it comes to what God has for us in the Word of God and our lives as the people of God. So if you're tired, like me, let's listen because the race isn't over yet. First of all, the author tells us to run the race by preparing. Secondly, he tells us to run by persevering. And thirdly, he tells us that we need to run this race by focusing our eyes. Let's look at each one of these three. First of all, one, verse 1 says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I remember when I was younger, I heard somebody say, that's your grandmother in heaven cheering you on. <laughs> Have you ever heard of that? Well, maybe she is cheering me on, but I don't think that that's what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 is talking about. The witnesses are the ones that he just finished talking about, the women, the men that are witnesses to living by faith that moved them. 
they give us a witness and we look back at them as witnesses to how their faith moved them. They didn't move away. Their faith was rooted in a God that was stronger than them. And uh, this past week, I uh, interviewed four people who are, uh, could we say, expert racers. They run marathons. And I asked them some questions about running because uh, I used to run in college around a track, but that was about it. And now if I run, it's only because it's raining outside or <laughs> I'm late. Uh, so uh, I asked them a few questions that I'll pepper through my sermon today as illustrations. But one of the runners that I interviewed reminded me that when they run, they are inspired to keep on going by the cheers of the people along the way. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Not that those people are literally cheering us, but by their example, they're showing us that we can imitate the best of their faith. And aren't we all imitators? Don't you see that in your kids? Maybe they imitate a sports figure or an older sibling or somebody like that, right? We just, we pick up things from, how do you think kids learn how to speak? Right? Parents, you never sat down and said, all right, I want you to say, mama. Well, maybe you did. But they only said, mama, by imitation. Right? And the rest of the language and how it works, they learn by watching and listening and processing. It's amazing how our brains work that way. So that's why God gives us in Hebrews chapter 11 and in the whole Bible examples of faith. It's important to remember that we're not in this race alone and other people have gone before. The other thing he says in verse 1, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that entangles us in the race. So, good things, bad things, whatever it takes. You know, in that video there, those uh, bubble soccer balls, <laughs> they look kind of fun. But that's no way to run a race, <laughs> right? Unless you're racing against yourself in some kind of weird circle, circular way. You're not really getting anywhere. You're just having a fun time doing something on your own. No, the marathon runners that I talked to, when I asked them, how do you prepare for a race, they talked about things like this. I train for four to six months before the race. I change my diet. I begin to run short distances and then gradually increase, you know, day by day, week by week, so that my body is not overly hurt by too much exertion all at one time. Um, one man said he does cross-training with spinning and weightlifting so that the rest of his body gets ready for this race too. It's not just one's feet and legs. Someone else said I try to get good sleep and then when I run, I make sure I'm wearing light clothes and comfortable running shoes. 
I mean, think about it, kids. If you were running a race, would you wear your bathrobe if you have one? <laughs> or boots? No. Well, if you did, you'd lose or you'd trip. So the author says, when you run the race, you've got to stop and think about it first. Prepare yourself for the race, which is another way of saying, evaluate how you are running your race, your Christian life. How are you doing it? Let me just pick one quick way that maybe is a good diagnosis for us all. How do you use your time? One person said, the good is ever the enemy of the best. How do you use your time? We all have the same amount of time given to us. What do you spend your time watching or listening to or reading? What do you spend your money on? Do you spend time that you could replace spending it on yourself instead of spending it on someone else? Helping them? Praying for them and with them? Feeding yourself on Scripture? Building up your faith instead of, let's say, your net worth or your muscles? Not that those things are bad, right? <laughs> They're good. But when they become the most important, they become sin because they crowd out what is the most important. So ask God to, ask, to, um, to show you what extra weight you're carrying around that you can jettison and really give you some movement in your faith. We all have things that we need to cut ourselves free from. And like these people that I talk to, these runners, um, when you decide that the value of running the race to Jesus is worth anything, then it won't be hard to throw this off or cut this away. You'll want to do it. When I was talking to these people, <laughs> they were not complaining like, yeah, I have to get up earlier to run. I have to fit this into my schedule. I have to stop eating so much of this. I, no, this was a delight to them because they had their goal in mind of getting in better shape. Second thing he says in verse 1 in the middle is, and let us run with perseverance, the race that's marked out for us. Not just let us run, but let us run with endurance. Endurance. That's the word that keeps the runner on the track. That's what the mark of a true Christian is. Continuing to believe. You believe once to get you into the family of God, but the faith with which you believe is a living faith that moves you to action. Jesus said that. Do you remember uh, the parable of the soil and the seed? There were four soils. And it says, 
Seed went in, seed went in, seed went in, seed went in. Everything was the same there. But the last soil, Luke chapter 8, verse 15, Jesus said, refers to the good soil that stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Persevering. That's a hard word to hear if you're tired, isn't it? But, but that's what real faith does. It doesn't give up. It doesn't give out. Are there ups and downs? Oh, sure. But it never stays down. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. If you hold firmly to the word, if you persevere, if you endure. So I asked these runner friends of mine, what kept them going when the race was painful? And they said a number of things. For instance, they said, well, knowing that it only gets harder the further they run. And I said, what? Yeah. If you know that it gets harder, you're not disappointed by that fact. Oh, okay. And again, I'm one of those armchair runners, right? I love to watch other people do it. Someone else said, it was important for them to remember that they weren't competing against other people in the race. They were competing against themselves. Someone else said, what helped me from not giving up was that I realized that I was actually becoming stronger the more I pushed into the pain. And someone else said, I listen to music because that rhythm and beat helped keep me going. And someone else said, other people in the race that I would talk to while I was running helped the time pass too. And then someone else, and by the way, this man who goes to our church has run marathons in 48 of our 50 states, and he hopes by the end of the year to finish up the last two states. And he's in his 60s. <laughs> it's amazing. So. He said to me, well, what I experience, not every time I run, but they call it the runner's high. Have you ever heard of that? He said between miles 8 and 18, the, the chemical in your brain just kind of kicks in, and suddenly the pain dissipates <laughs> until mile 19. And there's 26.2 miles to a marathon. Now, I said to every one of these people I interviewed, they were all Christians, I said, can you see how ev almost everything you're telling me here has a parallel to our lives? <laughs> and, they, and they said, yeah. In fact, the one man with the 48 marathon said, this passage you're preaching from is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Persevering. Persevering. I could go through every one of those and remind you that 
Yes, there's something about other people in the race encouraging us on. This is not a solo race. That's why it was so encouraging this week to hear you either saying, I'm here to help if anybody has a need with the tornado damage. Or we're praying for some people in our church and our neighborhoods that we've heard have been either injured or, you know, are seriously affected by the tornado damage and the winds and the water and the lack of electricity. We're running this race together. You may have a runner's high. <laughs> you may be in your bubble without pain, and that's good. But remember, that only gives you a little space to breathe to get back to running the normal race with struggles. Perseverance. But don't forget that perseverance is just one side of the truth. Christians believe in the perseverance of the saints, but we also believe in the preservation of the saints. That's another way of saying we persevere because God fuels our faith. Both are true. Listen to the way Paul brings both of these together in Philippians 2. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I don't understand that, but I believe it. God fuels it, we do it. Both are true. You can't sit back and say, well, it's all of God and not of me. Nor can you say, it's all of me. How do you like that, God? The humble faith says, Lord, increase my faith. And God commands us to run the race with perseverance. But we run in a different way, and that's what verses 2 and 3 say. We focus. That makes all the difference. Look at verse 2 again. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3 begins, consider him. I'd like us to do that. Today, the first Sunday of the month, the time when we consider Jesus. Let's talk for just a moment about these two names that the author gives Jesus. Oh, they're so beautiful. Pioneer, perfecter. Originator, completer. He is the one who is the author, the creator, who begins our faith anyone's faith? Do you hear that? We don't think it up. It's not like, well, we're smarter than the average uh, person, so therefore we're Christians. No. Faith is a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. 
So we look to Jesus. Lord, you're the one that got me into this race. And he's the perfecter, the completer, the one who brings it to pass. Now, if he's the alpha, the beginning, and he's the omega, the end, can you connect the two dots? <laughs> he's everything in between. That's why it says, he endured and he reigns in heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. That's not because he's tired. Like, oh, give me a chair. I have to take a break. No, it's regal language. Jesus is the king of the universe. He's enthroned in heaven. What he began in his incarnation, he completes in his ascension and his enthronement. And not only is he a king sitting on his throne, but he's a priest. He's a royal priest. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. He, what's he doing in heaven? He's not just waiting until he returns. He is. But in the meantime, he's building his church and he's building his people. He's praying for us. Remember, he, he's the pioneer and he's the perfecter. That's what Jesus is doing. And he wants his people to look at him. Even though we are grateful for the crowds in chapter 11, whether it's Rahab or Moses kind of cheering us on, we may glance at them, but we fix our eyes centered on our Savior. So I asked my runner friends, what kept you going, really kept you going, persevering through all this, I'm going to say, they didn't paint a very pretty picture of preparing and all the pain that it took. Like, they didn't talk me into this. <laughs> you know what they said, though? Every one of them said something like this. The satisfaction that I got when it was over and I did it was so great. And I kind of said, because I'm pushing a bit here, I said, you mean you found joy in that? Yeah, right. I was so excited to finish the race. It was grueling. But once I did it, you know, the endorphins came in, and oh, wow, that's what's worth it. And I want to say, okay, that's good. Is there not something better than running a race with your legs? That's good. Is there not a race that every Christian is running to see their Savior someday? <laughs> of course. So whether you're fit or not in your body, we are all charged to be fit in our souls, to get up, get prepared, keep at it, because the goal is going to be so sweet. For Jesus, the joy set before him is what kept him going.
And then I'm thinking, well, what was that joy? Was it just getting off a cruel Roman cross? No. You know that the means of crucifixion was simply done to his body, and it was a gruesome, agonizing, slow death for sure, but it was the crucifixion of Jesus' soul where he bore the wrath of God, where he attacked the gates of hell and defeated Satan in his spirit. What kept him going? Why did in agony in Gethsemane he said, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Why did he say, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will? And Hebrews tells us, Joy fueled his perseverance. Oh, what was he excited about? I, I think that it was at least two reasons for his joy. And I find them in Jesus' own words in a prayer he prayed right before he was crucified. You find it in John 17. Listen to verses 4 and 5 for the first one. See if you can see what joy this is. He's praying to his Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see what Jesus wanted right before he died. He wanted to go back to where he came from with unhindered joy with his Father and the Spirit, three in one, communing for all time with perfect love flowing to each one. Hard for us to understand the mystery of the Trinity, but that's how Jesus begins his prayer. Father, I'm almost done. I'm coming home. I love you so much. Can you hear the emotion in Jesus? Can you hear somewhat of a broken heart, but an overflowing heart with joy that says, there's nothing better in this universe than to be with you. And he himself is God. I don't understand that. But I can understand that that is what our joy should be. When a tornado sweeps through your neighborhood or the winds sweep through your life or your family. You know what comes up in a tornado? Things that are not deeply rooted. So if your relationship with Jesus is so deep and so precious and the roots are down there so deep, yeah, the tornadoes will come. The floods will come. But they won't disturb the soul who has found Jesus to be an all-sufficient and all-loving Savior and Lord. For the joy set before him, he endured.
for the joy set before you, we must endure. And then the, the second joy I think that Jesus had that Hebrews tells us about is found in John 17, 13. Listen to this one. And he's praying. Father, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they, his people, may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus not only had joy in his Father and the Spirit, but he had joy in his people having joy. You see this double overflow that kept Jesus going? In fact, why was he born? To call sinners. Why did he come? Why did he live? Why did he suffer? Not for himself, for you and for me. He came to give of himself for his people, his body, his bride. We are so loved, we only can scratch the surface of it. That's why Paul, in the book of Ephesians, makes it a prayer. Always pray that you will be able to understand the multidimensional love of God, which passes our understanding. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Pray that you will understand that which is beyond comprehension. But there's something to that, because when you know deep down the joy that comes that the tornadoes that come are not random acts of nature nor are they mean-spirited acts of a vengeful God against you. Like Jesus on the Sea of Galilee when the storms came up he was asleep. And you must never think that what the disciples said to him is true. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Just because it looks like God is asleep is no reason to distrust the one who holds all things in his hands. And so, you know what happened when Jesus got up? He looked at those waves and he said, be quiet. And waves became glass. The tornadoes are God's way of reminding us who's really in charge and what's really going on deep down in our souls. Where do you find your joy this morning? So, what is... God want us to do? He wants us to run. How do we run? We prepare to run. We run with endurance and perseverance. But we don't just, you know, gather more strength from other people or feel like we can do it. No, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because not only is he an example for us, but he is, 
He, he is the source of our faith. He is our everything. And um, what we do now when we take some of the nourishment, like my friend said, on the race, there were people with water bottles and little protein packs. <laughs> and when he was running, he would quick, quick grab one. And that helped him make it through. God has provided for us a communion table of nourishment in the middle of the race. Are you weary today? Are you tired? Do you feel like even giving up and you won't say it, but man, you know, one more and I'm out of here. Well, this is for you because Jesus came for you and he's here for you now. So if you have your, your cup, uh, I'm going to pray uh, in just a moment, but can I remind you that this is for Jesus' people. So if you're not a Christian today, could I ask you, instead of going to the meal, go to the one who gives us the meal. Go to Jesus in your heart first. Just pray and say, Lord, I, I need you. I want you to forgive my sin and give me life. And if you are really doing that right now, he will give it to you, and you will know it on the inside. And then you can come back to the table today or later. But for us that are part of the family in the race, Jesus said, that I want you to remember me in tangible ways, just like bread and wine. Just like they will feed your body, so I, the true bread and the true wine, will feed your soul. That's what we're doing here. And uh, I will ask you to just uh, take that top clear part off to uh, expose the bread there and then hold it in your hand and now let's pray together Lord Jesus thank you that you said this is my body which is for you as often as you eat it you do it in remembrance of me Thank you, Jesus. Let's eat together. And in the quietness of this moment, before we take the cup, can you just tell the Lord what's on your heart? He already knows that he wants you to tell him and to ask for strength to endure, to ask to rekindle your joy in him. 
And Lord Jesus, uh, you said at that last supper that this cup of wine is the new covenant in your blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And thank you that because of your death, you gave the Spirit to give us new hearts in that new covenant. And so please now, as we drink, we remember you and ask you to by your Spirit strengthen us and give us joy. Amen. Let's peel the layer back and drink together. Our God, now we thank you for the power that you promised to give us. Not vitamins that will keep our body going, but the power of new life, eternal life, that enters our soul and will enter our body like one day it will to Beryl Stewart and to Mary Ellen Greer. We thank you for resurrection power that flows from the cross as we continue to worship you now. In our Savior's name, amen.